And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which, when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. And you may be seated. Those of you who have just joined us today, we are making our way this summer through uh, part two of our study in the book of Acts. Last summer, we uh, covered the first five and a half chapters, and we began this summer by looking at the account of Stephen in Acts 6, verse 8. And Lord willing, we're making our way uh, into early September. We'll be um, arriving at the end of Acts chapter 12, which will set the stage for next summer, Lord willing, uh, journey part three in the book of Acts, which will be uh, Paul's missionary journeys we'll be looking at next summer. So just a little context where we have been, and Lord willing where we will be headed. I'm going to ask this morning as we have the word open before us, if you would just join me in a word of prayer. Father, good morning and we thank you. We thank you for your preached word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes the preached word and uses it in his own unique way to give life and ignite faith in one's soul. Reminded of the church and writing to Thessalonica, Paul says that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Father, this day I pray that your word would be received with joy and may this body collectively serve as witnesses to Jesus wherever you may direct their steps, even yet this week, may be said of the church here, as it was at the church in Thessalonica, 
that the word of the Lord has sounded forth in every place. And may the faith of this people here go forward. And may you get glory as we speak your name and lift up your gospel truth to those in our given sphere of influence. Thank you, Lord, for your sure word of testimony that you've given to us. Sure word that we can stand upon. As a church family, may we go forward grounded in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Our text for this morning. Last week we looked at chapter 9, verse 31, the first part of 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. This week we're going to focus our attention upon the last half of that verse. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. There's some key words here in the text. Walking, comfort, multiplied. If we look at that word walking, depending upon your translation, you might see the phrase going on or to proceed in a particular course of life. The NIV, I believe, has the word living. Okay, that's a very good rendering as well. Living in the sense of day to day. The word comfort in various translations may be put forward as encouraged or I like this one, the cheering and supporting influence. Of the Holy Spirit. And then the word multiplied uh, has been rendered in a few different translations uh, increased in numbers or continued to increase. Last week's message set the context for where we are in in Acts 9, verse 31. The church is experiencing right now a period of peace, uh, a rest from persecution. Saul, remember, is out of town now, currently, as of 9, verse 30. Having been rescued by the brethren now on two different occasions. Remember, Saul has just been converted. The Lord directly got his attention on that road to Damascus. And it didn't take too much time before Saul himself was being persecuted. And so on two different occasions, once in Damascus, once in Jerusalem, there are threats on his life. And the brethren help him escape the second time. Take him to Caesarea, and then they send him out to Tarsus, his hometown. And he'll remain there in in the text until we arrive at Acts 11, verse 25, when Barnabas is going to seek out Saul for some additional ministry opportunities in Antioch. As we said, Acts 9.31 is one of the many summary passages in Acts instructive for the church it's one of the reasons we're spending two weeks on it it is instructive in many ways for the church and showing the regions already influenced with the gospel Galilee Judea Samaria and is speaking to the edification of the saints is what we spoke of last week well the last half of the verse contains the subject matter for our time this morning and what it means to fear the Lord and why, according to the Bible, why, according to the Bible, the church ought to be walking in the fear of the Lord. See, the church not only had peace and was being built up, but it was also being multiplied. 
The point of the passage here, and it's important to put this forward right up front, I believe. The point of the passage here is not primarily of the church growing in numbers. It does speak to that. In the record of Acts, if you read through Acts, you see time and again where Luke, the writer, moved along by the Holy Spirit, inserts numbers. These numbers keep growing. There's an assumption when you come to the book of Acts that Christ's church is intended to grow. Gospel truth promotes gospel growth. And the church, according to Acts 9.31, had peace, was being built up, and was multiplied, was being multiplied, in the process of multiplying. And so today I'd like to speak to this multiplying of the church. It doesn't just happen automatically. There's a means by which this multiplying happened back in the first century. And there's a means by which this multiplying still happens today. Let's be sure that we don't just see this as something that occurred some 2,000 years ago. The Bible is profitable for us yet today. And so I believe as a church, it's important for us to see the means by which this multiplication took place is instructive for us as a church even yet today. You know, one of the potential confusions here is to see local assemblies with a large role of people on the attendance roster. The kind of multiplying that's spoken of here in the text is surely not an increase in numbers only. It's important for us to see this. As you read the text and think through the larger scope and context of Acts and, and, and the Bible as a whole, ask yourself if God is primarily after numbers only. This would contradict most of what was spoken last week as we talked about edifying one another, being built up in all things, into the head which is Christ. You see, it would also fall well short of the gospel that we are called to contend for, right? Jude calls us to contend for this gospel. This gospel of truth. This gospel that brings life where there was once no life. This gospel that shines light where there was once only darkness. A gospel that contends for numbers only is a shell with no substance. You know, I was thinking through that and I was reminded, uh, it's been several weeks ago now, but we had a... um, we had a bag, in our home, we had a, a bag of, of peanuts. I don't know if any of you like to eat peanuts. And the bag, you know, the shells on them. And you open, just, it's a messy, it's a messy thing. Um, and especially, um, we're there on the table and, and all these shells. And you're opening up these shells. And you know what I discovered as I was opening up some of these peanut shells? I, I have to admit, I was a little perturbed. Not all the peanut shells had two peanuts in them. You know, some of them only had one. And then there were some that didn't have any. Open it up and there's nothing in there. You know, and I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about this this picture here. As we think about the church and as we think about what, what Luke is writing here about the church multiplying. We're not just talking about numbers only here. The pursuit of numbers only is... I believe one of the many 
carrots dangling before the church of Jesus Christ. And it seems like the church, in some instances, is still chasing that carrot. And the result? Much like that peanut shell that's absent of peanuts. It's hollow. It's empty. It's a church that would be described as easily moved to and fro. With every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4 writes about this. It's characteristic of immaturity and not maturity in Christ. That's the goal. That's the objective. Maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about this. Colossians 1, Paul speaks to this as his aim and objective. As a preacher of the gospel. Him we preach. Warning every man. Teaching every man. In all wisdom. Why? For what end? What purpose? That we might present every man perfect, spiritually mature in Christ. It's important that you would hear on this that, that, that growth in numbers is not evil, it's not wicked, it's not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. And I believe Christ's church, in God's timing, according to God's purpose, is intended to grow numerically. But I also believe that God's church is intended to grow up. Amen? To grow up. To mature in Christ. To walk with Christ. To live out what it means to be a Christian to be set apart to Christ, to serve His kingdom purposes in the time that He gives. So as you look at the text today, I'd like to encourage you to look at it from the perspective that growth in numbers cannot be the only thing God is advocating in His church. As growth numerically happens in His church, there is work to be done. The Ephesians 4 kind of work, equipping Works of service. That the body of Christ may be built up. And God's church would then live as he intended it to live. We talked last week about what does that look like. Think Acts 2.42. Right? They were devoted to what? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, to prayers. In case some here have a negative framework toward numerical growth in, in the church and really down on what that is and how that gets played out and whether you had a bad experience with that. And I, I just like to caution you and, and put this forward right up front on this. Allow the word of God to shape your thoughts about Christ's church and how Christ's church ought to operate. Allow the word of God to inform you on church growth. And what that really means. I think it's important that we go to the word and see what the word has to say about it. And not to just quickly associate negativity with numerical growth. Let's put into practice also what we learned last week in Ephesians 4.29. Remember, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to its hearers. Let's be about using our tongues rightly. And especially so when speaking of Christ's church. Okay, amen? Let's do that. Let's use that well and let's, let's apply that Ephesians 4.29 principle. So the text says that it, the church was multiplied, that it continued to increase. The question comes, by what means, though, did it multiply? By what means? And by what means, even today, will it multiply? In the remaining time that we have here, I'd like to look at what the text says brought about such multiplication. And I believe it would be prudent for each one of us here to... Hear these words. If you are part of the body here at Hope in Christ, 
I pray you'll take this verse and put it in your heart. This is God's way for how his church grows. His Bible, the Bible speaks of another passages of how his church perhaps would grow, but this is definitely a passage that speaks to that. The means put forth here in Acts 9.31 tell us much, I believe, about what God is after when he speaks of his church multiplying, his church increasing. The means, if you notice this in the text, the means submitted in the last part of this verse, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, those means that are there do not align with a casual adding of numbers only into the church. The means cue you in to the kind of multiplying God is most concerned with. The text itself bears this out. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Notice there's a connector at the beginning of that verse, the beginning of that sentence, excuse me. And so God has put this verse here not only to communicate that the church was being built up at this time, and connects and alerts us that there is something else going on in this church. They were increasing. They were multiplying. So, as edification was happening, so too was multiplication. Multiplication minus edification resembles what we spoke of earlier with the picture of the peanut. It's a church that's concerned primarily with numbers only. It's hollow, it's empty. Edification that desires no multiplication is self-seeking. Blind to what God designed his church to be. I want you to see the two connected as opposed to separate entities. The summary here, I believe, is intended to communicate a big picture of Christ's church. The church that is being built up is also in the process of being multiplied. Important that we understand this. Not necessarily by numbers, but through biblical discipleship and encouragement. You see, the church can also be multiplied through biblical discipleship and encouragement. The church is multiplied then in the sense that the parts of the body are now using their God-given gifts and talents for the Lord in His church. And may the Lord get great glory as the parts of this body build upon Christ abiding daily in the vine of Christ. John 15 calls us to do just that, to abide in Christ. So the means of multiplication, let's look at the first one. Multiplication happens as the church operates in the fear of the Lord. Multiplication happens as the church operates in the fear of the Lord. One of the questions that comes forward is, what is it to fear the Lord? To give you some handles on that, it's a reverential awe, respect of who God is, thinking of his nature, his character, who he is, in light of what he has done, his wonderful works with the men out this morning. We were even talking about his, the beauty of creation this morning. When you walk outside, you couldn't miss it this morning. It's beautiful. It ought to remind us of this great God that we serve. As we think about what he has done, has he not provided the means for your salvation, church? He has bought you in two, two instances, in two senses, really. He's bought you 
you are his in the sense that he created you. You are his if you are in Christ Jesus today in the sense that he purchased you with his blood through Jesus Christ. When we think of the fear of the Lord, there are two verses that probably for many of us, these two verses come to our attention. Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we take these two verses together, we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge, which then causes us to look at what is wisdom, what is knowledge, how do they relate to one another. In studies this week, I, I'd come across some, some what I believe to be helpful uh, information, insight into uh, some, some background, some understanding of the fear of the Lord. And, and so a uh, helpful writer gives, gives some handles for us that I believe will, will be beneficial to us as we continue to go through and look at this. He says, we might describe wisdom as the best application and use of the knowledge we have. Wisdom as the best application and use of the knowledge we have. It says, only the one who fears God has the right perspective, which leads him to use his information for the proper end. Since wisdom is knowledge applied to the right end, knowledge realizes its purpose only in conjunction with wisdom. Okay? It goes on and says that the fear of God must be the foundation upon which knowledge is built. It is the fear of the Lord that gives us the right perspective and prompts us to use it for the right end. It is the fear of the Lord that should determine our fundamental outlook on life. Think about it for just a moment. Why are we here? To what? Go ahead. You can, you, you can tell me. Why are you here? For the glory of God, right? Okay, good. We're all nodding our heads. We're all are in agreement with that. Excellent. Super. I'm glad we all are on the same page here. Glory of God. If, if that is why we're here, right, our main goal to glorify God, that is the ultimate goal to which all knowledge should be directed. Writer goes on and says, but the person who does not fear God doesn't even have the right foundation on which to build. He may be a decent person and generally beneficial to society. How many of us know those kind of people? Yeah, good people, good, you'd say they're a good person. But in the end, he falls short because he neither knows nor fears God. So here it is. It says, biblical wisdom always factors God into the equation. Biblical wisdom always factors God into the equation. Now, I'd like to provide some scripture examples of what we're talking about here. Very helpful. These are very helpful uh, for me personally, and I pray they'd be helpful for you as well. Uh, the first one is Proverbs 11, verse 1. Proverbs 11, verse 1 says that dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And you may have heard the, the little maxim, honesty is the best policy, right? Honesty. Honesty is the best policy. And it is true that it is the best policy. It's true. Honesty works. It's good for business. That companies practice being honest with one another. Dishonest business practices are not healthy. They're detrimental to the owner, customer alike. And word eventually gets around 
that you are a dishonest business person, right? In fact, they have these these, uh, companies now that are set up and designed in such a way to point and, and put red flags out there for everybody who's checking in, wants to know, is this a legitimate business or not? The church is to be consumed not simply with what works best, though. Pragmatics. The church ought to be asking, what what is the Lord's desire? What would he have us flee in this situation? The text says that dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. Not only is it poor business to be dishonest, but most importantly, such actions are an abomination to the Lord. The scriptures share his heart on how to handle and deal with real situations that confront us. And conversely, it's good business to practice honesty, a just weight. Okay, Proverbs 11.1. And yet the church is to ask first, what would the Lord desire What would he have me pursue in this situation? Not only what to flee, but what would he have me pursue? The text says that a just weight is his delight. See, when you know how God views a situation, when you have his heart on the matter, you can walk in confidence. Proverbs tell us that too. Proverbs 15, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will have a place of refuge. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Look at a second scriptural example. Proverbs 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Ears. Young people, where are your ears? And your eyes. Ears and eyes. Okay? I want you to think about that for just a moment. For many of us, when we read a verse like this, Perhaps you're inclined to slide right by it and say, yep, the Lord made our ears and eyes. Next proverb. But when you consider what it means to fear the Lord, this verse no longer is read casually, I believe. See, one who fears the Lord goes beyond just a simple accumulation of the facts. God made my ears and my eyes. He sees a text now as the basis for stewarding these eyes and ears. Now you have just elevated the text to a different level and you've engaged yourself on the truths and the principles of God's word. Yes, God is creator of my ears and my eyes, but he wants me to walk in wisdom. He desires for me to walk in the light and not in darkness. He desires for me to walk in love toward one another. His will is that I steward my eyes and my ears For his glory. If he gave me these eyes and ears. Then I am called to steward them as he would see. That I steward them. I'm a manager. For time. Of what he's given to me. Proverbs 15.27 says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death. See the scriptures church. The scriptures are not given to us as just mere facts. We've been... We've been given, as the hymn writer says, we've been given the wonderful words of life. When's the last time you connected the fear of the Lord with a fountain of life? 
Fear of the Lord turns you away from the snares of death and helps you pursue life in Christ. I'll give you a third example. Proverbs 15, verse 3. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Again, this verse is not intended to simply express the fact that God sees all things. One who fears the Lord understands the fact and he's motivated by the fact of his eyes, God's eyes, his eyes, watching, being in every place. He's watching me. Now, that can be both a cause for joy and comfort in one operating in the fear of the Lord. For one operating apart from the fear of the Lord, this verse might get pushed aside for fear of exposing darkness in your life. See, this word that we have before us, this word is light, and it penetrates any darkness you may be walking in. And so if the Lord is in every place keeping watch, I'm drawn to steward my life now in such a way to please him with this life that he's given to me. Proverbs 14.2 says that he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. This verse contrasts a couple things. First of all, a way of living, walking in uprightness versus he who is perverse. But it also contrasts one's heart toward God. This is so important. One's heart toward God. You see, one who walks in uprightness fears the Lord versus one who is perverse in his ways despises the Lord. You heard that phrase, your actions speak louder than words. Your actions manifest one of two things. They, they, they manifest a fear of the Lord or a despising of the Lord. A reverential awe of God and who he is or a profaning of his name. There, there are no neutral zones here on this. We're, we're one or the other here. So are you walking in uprightness? Are you seeking to understand, as the, as the writer says in Ephesians, to understand what the will of the Lord is? Are you interested at all in what God thinks about your day-to-day decisions that you encounter? His eyes are watching you. And so the question then becomes, does that cause you to walk around in fear? Ah, panic, scared. Hoping by chance he might not catch you doing something you shouldn't do. Or does this verse cause you to rejoice knowing that his presence is with you. That his, he's watching you this very hour. He's concerned about you. He's providing for you. He's protecting you. And out of this mindset comes a desire then to please him. Not to cower. Not to hide. But a desire to please him. In all that you do. As you consider the wisdom of God in the pages of Scripture, I want to remind you that biblical wisdom always factors God into the equation. The church in Acts 9.31 is walking and living, going on in the fear of the Lord. And as it does so, it is being multiplied. Okay? Now, the question comes as you read through the text... What's it look like for a church to walk in this manner? How would this get played out? What are some application handles that we could hold on to here to help us in walking in the fear of the Lord? There are several. This is not exhaustive, so if you've got something you're writing with, you might 
just right quickly. Because there's several here. And they're all rooted and anchored right here in God's word. Okay? So here we go. First, walk in the fear. They're all going to begin with walk in the fear of the Lord. Okay? Walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord, first of all, because God requires it. God requires it. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 12 and 13. says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What's first on the list? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Okay? Fear of the Lord your God. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? He requires it. Number two, walk in the fear of the Lord. Lest others reproach the name of the Lord. Reminded in the, in the book of Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah chapter 5 when the people, remember they, they just come back together and, and now Nehemiah's own countrymen were enslaving their own people. <laughs> and in Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 9, Nehemiah says, what you're doing is not good. Charging his own countrymen, they were charging their own countrymen interest. He says, stop it. What you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? In other words, how you're living your life is going to make an impact upon the nations. There are people watching you. And so walk in the fear of the Lord, lest others reproach the name of the Lord. How you act, the things that you do, especially in a public setting. People are watching. I'd like you to consider walking in the fear of the Lord, others, lest others reproach the name. You are a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. An ambassador, biblically speaking. Paul says that. And we are to carry the name of Jesus around with us. Steward well this name not bring it into reproach. Three, walk in the fear of the Lord in light of Christ's return. Proverbs 23, 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. You see, we ought not be spending our days, our time here, loving the things of the world, looking at what other people have and craving and, and coveting what other people have. Instead, we ought to be mindful of our heavenly citizenship. Amen? Heavenly citizenship. There's going to be a day. In fact, Hebrew writer talks about that day approaching. How important it is as a body that we are meeting together, gathering together, encouraging one another as that day approaches. Walk in the fear of the Lord in light of Christ's return. Number four, walk in the fear of the Lord, for it is evidence of your sanctification. It's evidence of your sanctification. If you turn to 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, this is, this is a wonderful passage. At the end of chapter 6, he's talking about the temple, right? Uh, you are the temple of the living God. And then he says this in, in, in chapter 6, uh, verse 16. I will dwell in them. Listen to these promises. 
I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Those are wonderful, precious promises. Chapter 7, verse 1 begins this way. Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. You see, walk in the fear of the Lord. It's evidence of your sanctification. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Fifth, for blessed is the man who does so. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Who delights greatly. Who delights greatly in his commandments. You see, there's a connection, isn't there? And we'll get to this. A connection between one who fears the Lord and one who has a desire for his word. Number six, walk in the fear of the Lord with grace. With grace. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 it says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's grace. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Walk in the fear of the Lord. For his goodness is waiting. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, this was a rich verse. Psalm 31, 19. Psalmist says, oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. Listen to that. You have laid up, you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. There's a parallel between those who fear the Lord, those who trust the Lord. Listen to the second half of the verse, though. How great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men, in the context of other people. So the question becomes, are you going to, in the presence of the sons of men, in the presence of other people, are you going to be more inclined to go with the people? Or are you going to be more inclined to trust in the Lord, to fear the Lord, and to recognize that His goodness, listen, His goodness is stored up for those who fear Him. That's wonderful news. And we don't know exactly how that goodness gets poured out or displayed, but I would venture to say if we took time, we have been recipients and we could recount ways in which God's goodness has been poured out upon us. Those who fear him. How great is your goodness which you have laid up, you have stored up for those who fear you, who trust you in the presence of the sons of men. Walk in the fear of the Lord and flee evil. The Proverbs and Psalms abound in this. Psalm eight thirteen: the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. The context of the personification of wisdom here in Proverbs chapter 8. We also see Proverbs 3 verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Number 9, walk in the fear of the Lord by keeping His commandments. Remember the end of Ecclesiastes? 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. Fear God and keep His commandments. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Number 10, walk in the fear of the Lord in light of all He's done for you. In light of all He's done for you. You might recall in, in, in 1 Samuel. In Samuel, he's, he's speaking. Remember, the, the nation was wanting a king like all the other nations around them. And Samuel's giving them an understanding of what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen if we go this route. Gives them a big list of things this king's going to do. But he says in Samuel 12, 24 and 25, he says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. We read these, the same idea in Exodus chapter 14, 30 and 31. The Lord saved Israel, remember? Saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead. They saw them dead on the seashore. The scripture says, Israel saw, thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Walk in the fear of the Lord in light of all he's done for you. He's done so much for you, church. Walk in the fear of the Lord using his word as your guide. Oh, this was rich in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, you remember the, the outline that was given for the king. This was a blueprint for how the king was to operate. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 19... It says, also it shall be when he, that's the king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him. The king's going to have the book of law with him. It shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life. Pray that would be true even today. The one who is leading in our country would do just that. But it goes on and says, not only that he should read it all the days of his life, that he, there's a purpose, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So it's not simply having it with him. It's not simply even just reading it, albeit that is a wonderful thing that he would read it. But in reading it, the purpose for reading is that he may learn to fear the Lord as God and then be careful to do what this word says. Not be a hearer only, but a doer, right? We've talked about this. Walk in the fear of the Lord for the sake of the next generation. Dads and moms, listen closely to this. Walk in the fear of the Lord for the sake of the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me in all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. There's a connection here between hearing his words and fearing him. And that they may teach their children. There's work to be done. Amen? Work to be done. 
Proverbs 14, 26, we read earlier, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. His children will have a place of refuge. If you are walking in the fear of the Lord, dads and moms, your children are going to have a place of refuge. They're going to be able to see an example, not a perfect example, but an example of a dad and a mom striving, earnestly, laboring to walk with Christ in the fear of the Lord. This is so important for all of our families, for each one here, that we see this in the pages of Scripture. What a beautiful thing that we model this, parents, and children, that we take note of this, to walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord for it is characteristic of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. Characteristic of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 verse 18 begins, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. He goes on. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Giving thanks always for, the things, for all things to God the Father. And then verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. All, all three of those participles. Speaking to one another. Giving thanks. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Those all flow out of being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, there's a connection, isn't there, between walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. According to what we read in Ephesians, being filled with the Spirit, one of the things that happens as we are filled with the Holy Spirit is that we submit to one another in the fear of God. There's this reverence of, we're we're not our own. We've been bought. And so we're endeavoring to submit to one. We do this in the fear, in the context of the fear of God, who He is, what He has done. Walk in the fear of the Lord knowing he takes pleasure in it. He takes pleasure in this. Psalm 147, 10 and 11 says, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his mercy. And finally, not, 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 not finally as in this is all there is, but finally for this morning. Amen. Some of you are going, amen. I hope you were able to jot down some of those. And if you didn't catch them all, I encourage you to maybe go online and you can listen to them and get them in more detail later. Walk in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that God has placed his Holy Spirit in you for this very purpose. Walk in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that God has placed his Holy Spirit in you for this very purpose. Jeremiah 32. 38 through 40 says, They shall be my people, God speaking, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way. Give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For the good of them, notice that, for the good of them and the children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Ezekiel 36 has a similar idea. 26 and 27. 
Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and, and listen, and cause you, he says, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Praise the Lord that he's done this. Now, it's quite a list. Again, it's not exhaustive, but a great starter list to practice. Put in motion even yet today. Perhaps these can be uh, points of discussion with family later this week. As you think through some of the passages on the fear of the Lord. This church in Acts 9.31 was being multiplied as it walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I, I read Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 36. I, I read those last for a reason. Because it connects our responsibility to walk in the fear of the Lord with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's a connector. Our responsibility to walk in the fear of the Lord with the comfort of the Holy Spirit who's been given to, who's been poured out in our hearts, right? Romans 5 verse 5. So we see multiplication happens not only as the church walks in the fear of the Lord, but also multiplication happens as the church operates in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. See, walking in the fear of the Lord is not intended to just give it your best shot and let the Lord do the rest. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. I don't believe that's what the scripture is speaking to. Walking in the fear of the Lord happens in conjunction with the Holy Spirit operating in you. Walking in the fear of the Lord happens in conjunction with the Holy Spirit operating in you. In fact, Romans 3.18 tells us, remember, and that sits in the context, Romans 3, where Paul says that all are under sin. And 3.18 says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. You look around the world, it doesn't take too, too long to find and see many who have absolutely no fear of God. Words that get spoken, words that go unspoken, Actions that get taken. The manifestation of life. How people live their lives. These all speak to the kind of foundation one is building on. Is there a fear of God working in them or not? See, the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, or, or as I, I like the, the phrase, the, the comforting, the, uh, the cheering and the supporting influence of the Spirit. At work in the church, as the church was walking in the fear of the Lord, the Lord's comforting presence was also at work. And you know, there's a scripture that, that speaks to that, 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 that idea of our working and God working. Philippians chapter 2 comes to mind, right? Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 says, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Those of you here today who are in Christ Jesus... We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God works in you, how? Through the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how he works in you. It's the Holy Spirit who guides. The Holy Spirit who directs. Who teaches. Who illumines reveals, opens eyes to see, opens ears to hear. The Holy Spirit speaks, this is so important, the Holy Spirit speaks not on his own authority. The Bible says that. If you read John 
14, 15, 16, you read a lot about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is giving a lot of insight into the Holy Spirit before he goes to the cross. There's another counselor that's going to be coming. I must leave before he comes. And Jesus is telling his disciples all about the Holy Spirit who is yet to come. And in that passage of Scripture, John's Gospel says that the Spirit, Jesus says the Spirit does not speak on his own authority. He speaks only that which he hears. He's always pointing, the Holy Spirit that is, always pointing to the very words of Christ. And so we need to ask the question, are you conditioned to speak on your own authority? Is it your habit to speak or act as though you are your own authority? Isn't it true that the Bible would place all men under his authority? Men, we're under authority. Because the Lord has placed you as head in your home, that doesn't mean you are exempt from being under authority. No, no. You are under his authority. We ought to operate as men under authority. Wouldn't it also be true that your life is not your own then? To live however you want it to be lived out. That it ought to be aligned under the authority of our. The authority that's granted life to us. The person of Jesus Christ. He's the one. The one whose name we proclaim. He's the authority. In fact, the very basis for proclaiming the gospel message is found under the banner of Christ's authority. Matthew chapter 28. That great commission that we know so well. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. And you know the rest of the verse probably. You see, when the church was scattered following Stephen's death... At the end of Acts chapter 7, the Bible says that the church went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8 verse 4 tells us that. Even in the midst of persecution, the church still saw itself under the authority of Christ. And that Acts 1, 8 mandate, which said, Jesus said, wait for the power. And then with that power, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the very end of the earth. We see even in the life of Saul here in Acts 9. Saul was confronted with Christ himself on the road to Damascus. He came to understand from that day forward that there is a higher authority in life. And his name was Jesus. It was the one he'd been persecuting. You see, the church that walks in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit understands that it walks under authority. We must, as a church, walk under the authority of Jesus Christ. If Christ is the head, he is also our authority. And we walk under his authority. If you are in Christ, you are under his authority. If you're not in Christ, perhaps you are walking and and are blind right now to seeing it. He is still your authority whether you recognize it or not. As a new creation, you now walk under a different authority. It used to be you. It used to be flesh. That's all you thought about. Now it's Christ. And for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church, it must be Christ. So let's walk together in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, being built up, being edified, as the text says here in Acts 9, 31, edified and multiplied, striving to be found perfect in Christ, mature in Christ, complete, whole, 
rooted and built up and established in the faith, Paul says in Colossians. I would want you to know, church, that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority, Christ. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 tells us that. I'd like to close with, a, with one scripture passage. And really it's a scripture of warning. I'm leaving with a warning from the scripture. And it's a scripture passage in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. This is the time when Israel was being taken captive by Assyria. They were being taken out of their land. And those in Assyria were being transplanted into Samaria. There's a verse in 2 Kings 17 verse 33 that I'd like to read. And that whole passage, that whole context is, is, is helpful and beneficial, but I just want to read the one verse. Verse 33 says, They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from whom they were being carried away. These nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Verse 41 tells us, it says also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. You know, I, I believe there is a, a, a direct correlation between being taken into captivity and serving one's own gods. You, you may not be taken into uh, Assyria today for serving your own gods. But you will continue to experience bondage and captivity that comes along with that way of living, church. Notice the impact on their children mentioned in the text. It's interesting, in several of the passages we've read, there's been reference to your children. Walking after your own gods, walking under your own authority, apart from Christ. The ramifications are devastating to each one. Each one in your home. This is not just you. This is everyone in your home. Church, I want to call you this morning to walk wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord, in the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, to work out your salvation, to do it with fear and trembling, and to rejoice that God is at work in you to carry out His good purposes in you. Let it not be said of us that the church here feared the Lord yet served their own gods. Church, we must not, we cannot add to the Lord. We'll fear the Lord, but we're also going to serve our own gods. We see where this got Israel. They were being taken captive. And church, we also will be walking and living in a, in a sludge or a, of, of captivity, bondage as well, if we don't get rid of these gods, if we're not clear on walking, according to what the scripture says, walking in the fear of God. 
See, it's one thing to fear God, but then the text goes on and says they served other gods. Psalm, 80, Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, give me singleness of heart, Lord. Give me singleness of heart. Teach me that I may walk in your name. That the fear of the Lord would be sufficient upon which to build, that I don't need other things. May I walk, and as the text says in Acts 9, 31, and then all the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. May these truths in this one verse be evidenced here in this body at Hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? Last night I was just looking up into the sky and was reminded of how big you are and how small I am. Father, I pray that you would instill within each one of us a fear of you, awe, respect for who you are, your nature, your character. But we would also have have an awe and a reverence for what you have done. All the many things that you have done, the wonderful works, and most importantly, most significantly, that work of salvation. That you saved us when we were dead in our trespasses. That you made us alive in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your salvation. And Father, in light of who you are and what you have done, I pray that we all, as a church, as your church, gathered here, that this church would be united in heart, singleness of purpose, that there would be Christians here who have an undivided heart, whose loyalties are toward you and toward your word. Oh, Father, I pray we would walk together in this manner. May we not serve you or fear you and serve other gods as well. Oh, Father, may the warnings of Scripture be very clear in our mind. May we earnestly desire to devote ourselves to the things of God in our lives. May we train ourselves in godliness and not in the ways of the world. Help us to be truly salt and light and be influence in this world that we live in. Use our mouths and our ears and our feet. And I pray, Lord, that all these things that you've given to us, Lord, would be instruments of righteousness that we would practice and think about how we might please you with our lives that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. And I pray we would stand firmly upon this word of truth that you've given to us. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Thank you for that. I pray we would always be a grateful people. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.